Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Dr. Michael Mack received his A.B. from Harvard University with a concentration in economics and his Ph.D. in English from Columbia University. Since 1997, he has been an associate professor in the English department at Catholic University of America. Dr. Mack specializes in Shakespeare, 16th and 17th century English poetry, Renaissance poetics, and philosophical and theological backgrounds for Renaissance literature. He has designed numerous courses for his university, served on executive and advisory boards for many different journals, including Moriana, Sophia Press, and Seaway Press. On top of it all, Dr. Mack has published extensively, including a study of Sir Philip Sidney's Apology for Poetry. He is currently working on a book provisionally and, as he says, pretentiously entitled Shakespeare and the Human Condition. His talk today is entitled Sidney, Shakespeare, and the Imago Dei. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Michael Mack. All right, thank you very much, Peter. Uh, and thanks to the Aquinas Institute for including me in this discussion of literature and Christology. Uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'd especially like to thank Colton Duncan and Peter again, and Monica Blaney and Ben Sutter for all of their help in organizing things and uh, treating us very well while we've been here. So for virtually all of the literary authors in the Renaissance England, faith mattered. And theology, in the sense of faith-seeking understanding, is often implicit in, or indeed the subject of, their works. John Donne and George Herbert have deeply considered theological opinions, especially when it comes to conversion. Spencer had a distinctly Anglican theology with a decidedly iconoclastic and anti-Catholic bite. And of course, there is Milton. In Paradise Lost, his epic work of theodicy, his great argument is nothing less than to justify the ways of God to men. Now, for Sidney and Shakespeare, the authors I will examine today, theological considerations are not usually seen as central to their works. This is due in some measure to the scope and weight of their overall literary accomplishments. Their works are an embarrassment of riches. It's also true, however, that theological matters are less overt in their works. By the end of this talk, I hope to have convinced you that theology, even though it is often only implicit, is in fact crucial to both. Let me give a brief overview of the talk. I will begin with Sidney, since he is the genius at the head of the literary explosion that included Shakespeare, along with Spencer, Marlowe, Dunn, Johnson, and others. I will try to open up the theological dimensions of Sidney's literary theory as he presents it in uh, his Apology for Poetry, written around 1581, and published posthumously in 1595. I'll then turn to Shakespeare and his use of theology in various works before zeroing in on his great last play, The Tempest. I should say late play. 
I'll conclude by comparing the implied anthropologies and Christologies of Sidney and Shakespeare. So first, Sidney. Sidney's best friend and first biographer, Fulk Greville, attests to the importance of the Reformed religion to Sidney, in his public as well as in his private affairs. Let me start with a brief biography to outline Sidney's religious commitment, which I will go on to argue extend into the, liter into the literary theory he developed in the Apology. Sidney came from an important family. His mother was a childhood friend of Princess Elizabeth and her chief attendant when she became queen. One of his maternal uncles married Lady Jane Grey and with her was executed by Queen Mary. When Sidney was born to prove the family's loyalty to Mary, uh, he was named after her new husband, Philip II of Spain, who was Sidney's godfather. Sidney's two surviving maternal uncles went on to become earls. One was the Earl of Leicester, a favorite of Queen Elizabeth and for many years her suitor. Sidney had the best education of the day, and when he graduated from Oxford, he undertook a three-year tour of the continent. I think that is how Hillsdale students should round out their education as well. <laughs> you can tell your parents I said so. Because of his family connections, he was received at the great courts of Europe and was treated as a prince in waiting. And because of his brilliance and intellectual curiosity, he met many of the best known humanists, scientists, and other men of learning. Sidney made quite an impression. The King of France, Charles IX, uh, wanted, uh, didn't just want, made him a baron. William of Orange, that's William I, the great-grandfather of William III, later King of England. William of Orange tried to arrange Sidney's marriage to his sister. Uh, it turns out the only monarch Sidney had trouble with uh, was his own. Uh, Elizabeth had concerns about how friendly Sidney was on this tour with Catholics. He engaged in such suspicious activity as spending three hours alone with the brilliant Englishman turned Jesuit, Edmund Campion. Ironically, when Sidney returned from his travels and took up responsibilities at court, Elizabeth denied him advancement because of his persistent advocacy for aiding Protestants persecuted on the continent, a position which did not square well with Elizabeth's pragmatic international policy. The final straw for Elizabeth was when Sidney wrote her uh, a letter trying to dissuade her from marrying the presumptive heir of the French throne, the Duke of Anjou, who was a papist. And in 1580, Elizabeth dismissed the 26-year-old Sidney from court. This misfortune for Sidney was for us fortunate, insofar as it provided him time for writing uh, for writing, which he calls in the apology his unelected vocation. In 1584, Elizabeth reluctantly entered into war in the Low Countries, and she sent Sidney to serve as the governor of Flushing and to fight under the military leadership of Leicester. In 1586, at the age of 31, Sidney died from a wound he sustained fighting on behalf of Protestants against the army of his godfather, the King of Spain. There is no evidence that Sidney intended any of his literary works for print, but his sister Mary had them published after his death. Sidney's Astrophil and Stella, published in 1591, uh, introduced the Petrarchan sonnet sequence to England, and it started an absolute craze. Uh, Spencer, Shakespeare, many others were inspired to produce sequences of their own. Among the many noteworthy features of Astrophil and Stella is its multi-layered irony. Astrophil is a play on Sidney's Christian name, which means star lover. Stella, or the star, we know is a woman named Penelope Devereux. Just as 108 suitors had plagued Odysseus's Penelope, Sidney writes 108 sonnets for his Penelope. Astrophil aspires to be an ideal platonic lover but repeatedly falls into carnality. The sequence is the embodiment of a witty, feigned incontinence. 
On publication, it was an immediate masterpiece, and at the same time, a complete send-up of the form. The Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia, published in 1593, introduced the Greek prose romance to England. It provided the basis for a deeper study of character and for the eventual birth of the novel. Shakespeare borrowed from it repeatedly. It is said that as King Charles I mounted the scaffold to be beheaded, he recited an excerpt from the Arcadia known as Pamela's Prayer. The name Pamela is Sidney's invention, and significantly Samuel Richardson, often thought of as the father of the novel, gives it to the titular character of his first novel. Sorry for bragging on Sidney so much, but you have to know. In the Apology for Poetry, published in 1595, the work which I will focus on today, Sidney imports the newly recovered poetics of Aristotle, as well as the French and Italian neoclassical literary ideals that had yet to make their way to England. It is still the most important work of literary criticism in English, according to me and others, uh, having influenced verse, prose, and drama from Shakespeare and Ben Jonson to Alexander Pope to T.S. Eliot. Now, in none of these works of Sidney's is theology front and center. In contrast, however, the translations Sidney undertook are decidedly theological, and they give us a window into what he knew and cared about. He and his sister translated the Psalms, combining his interest in sacred poetry and in adapting classical meters for English verse. More important for our purposes today are Sidney's translations of two works out of the French. The first is Philippe Mornay's, Philippe Mornay's Trueness of the Christian Religion. It was very well known in France, and Sidney's personal friendship and religious sympathy with Mornay is well established. The translation demonstrates, first of all, Sidney's familiarity with large chunks of sophisticated patristic theology. Furthermore, his choices for translating certain terms help us to appreciate the possible semantic range of those words when Sidney uses them in his own writing. The second translation that gives us a window into Sidney's own writing is that of Guillaume Dubartas's Divine Weeks, an elegant and widely admired poem on God's work of creation. It is an expansion of Genesis, as would be Milton's Paradise Lost, uh, which also is deeply indebted to Dubartas. Like Milton, Dubartas is a very serious religious intention for the poem. It was nothing less than carrying out the Protestant Reformation by other means, by the winning charm of poetry rather than by polemical tracts or indeed open warfare. He believed that literature was an important and underdeveloped front in the effort to advance the reformation of religion. This vision deeply impressed Sidney, and with his enforced rustication, he chose to dedicate himself to advancing a similar program in England. Sidney gives us a glimpse into his hope of redeeming literature in England in his apology for poetry. The first thing to note, however, are two crucial differences from Dubartas. The most obvious is that Sidney's literary powers are, are on a whole other order than those of Dubartas. The second is that unlike Dubartas, who wrote divine poetry that basically extends sacred scripture, Sidney expounds a theory of poetic fiction in which the material for poetry is not found in the Bible or any other source, but simply in the mind of the poet. In articulating this theory of, in the Apology, he is so bold as to borrow from Dubartas's account of divine creation in order to figure forth his own theory of human creativity. The boldness of this claim is not necessarily apparent to readers today, uh, since now we take the idea of human creativity for granted. But this was not the case in Sidney's time. Sidney and his contemporaries used the word create exclusively for God's work of forming the universe out of 
not out of pre-existing matter, but out of nothing. The distinction insisted upon by Augustine was that God creates, man makes. Sidney acknowledges how bold his claim is, and indeed he refrains from using the word create for what the poet does. But he says it without saying it, uh, as I'll try to show in a moment. Obviously, the idea did catch on. Uh, the word quickly lost its original transgressive meaning. Uh, and less than a century later, all kinds of people were said to be creative. Now we have tax planners are very creative. It, it, you know, everyone is creative. Every kid in grade school is so creative that the works adorn the walls. Before turning to the key passages in the Apology, uh, let me give you a big picture context for the discovery of human creativity, uh, as I see it. A central method of Christian theology is analogy. In order to understand God, we reason from what we know. If we're Irish, we say that the unity of the Trinity is like that of a clover, knowing full well that God is infinitely more different from and similar to the clover. Of course, humans, though still infinitely dissimilar, are much more like God than a clover. In fact, the clover, it turns out there are all kinds of heresies implicit in it. There's a really good cartoon on the interweb about it. Um, much of scholastic theology is an extended study of what we confer, can infer about God from his image and likeness found in human beings. St. Thomas Aquinas explains the generation of the second person of the Trinity by reference to the human intellect. Just as we produce thoughts and words by way of intellect, the Father generates the logos by way of his divine intellect. And just as love proceeds from the human will, the generation, uh, the Father generates the, the generation of the Holy Spirit is by way of the divine will. By the Renaissance, this long history of drawing inferences about God from what we know about the human soul had greatly advanced our knowledge and wisdom of God. What happens in the Renaissance, among other things, is that the analogy of God and man, which was used to reverse engineer, as it were, a model of God, was again reversed. When Sidney thinks about the human intellect illuminated by faith, he thinks about how it resembles the creative intellect of God. And when he thinks of the regenerated human will, he draws on what we know about the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. He remains fully aware of how far God surpasses man, but he believes he is justified in praising human potential because in doing so, he's praising the power of the God who made man. I don't know if Sidney ever considered this historical context that I've just laid out, um, which I think of as a process of circular thinking that plays out over centuries, uh, that turns out to be much more fruitful than the circular thinking we encounter every day. Uh, but it is, uh, this is how I understand a larger context. Uh, it's really sort of my theological take on the old story of the Renaissance discovery of man. As we turn to the key passage in which Sidney argues for the creative power of the poet, I want to offer a caveat. This is the most rhetorically elevated and the most often quoted part of the Apology, but it's only one part. Sidney approaches the defense of poetry differently in different parts of the Apology. In another section, he famously sets up a contest between philosophy, history, and poetry, showing how poetry combines the best features of the other two. It is a compelling argument, but it is what Sidney calls his more ordinary argument, compared to the opening section. Let's look at this high-flying presentation, which is the basis for inferring uh, Sidney's Christology. So he begins 
uh, this section uh, with an argument from etymology. Uh, the name poet is from the Greek for maker. And in England at Sydney's time, poets were known as makers, courtly makers. Uh, indeed, it is the word used, uh, poet, uh, for God's work of creation in the Septuagint. Okay. Obviously not in the Hebrew, but in the authoritative Greek translation, uh, God is a maker, uh, as he is in the Platonic account uh, of the Timaeus. The two accounts having been inextricably intertwined for uh, more, more than a millennium uh, prior to Sydney. Sydney shifts to Aristotle next. Sorry. Uh, there is no art delivered unto mankind that hath not the works of nature for his principal object. Okay, art imitates nature, so says Aristotle in the physics. Um, Sidney uh, acknowledges this. Um, it is, however, it's true for every art except for poetry. The poet does not imitate nature as we see it. Uh, and that is creative nature. Uh, what they, they had the platonic term from Scotus Erigena, uh, natura naturata, nature that is created. Um, the poet, however, becomes another nature. He doesn't imitate nature, he becomes another nature. And that nature is uh, akin to what we think of as great creating nature. That's what Shakespeare, a term he uses. This is natura naturans, uh, a creating nature. Uh, what we might call mother nature. Mother nature is not the world we see, but the world we see is generated through her maternity, right? Um, Sidney's poet brings forth things that are not even seen in created nature. He creates a new world out of what he finds in what he calls, at the end of this passage, the zodiac of his own wit. Very elegant uh, locution. Um, maybe we can talk about it later. Uh, unlike the brazen or fallen world of created nature, uh, the poet delivers a golden world. Uh, it is the world uh, of the golden age prior to the fall, as it was originally created and meant to be in Sydney's mind, I believe. And so at the end of this passage, uh, we get how when the poet is uh, imitating what he is, he is working from his own idea. Uh, that is in that zodiac of his wit. Uh, this is another bold claim for Sidney's day. Ideas, this is before Locke, in which ideas were sort of drained of all of their noetic power and uh, became not very interesting. Um, uh, here are the ideas, primarily, if you're using this word in Sidney's time, you're talking about the divine ideas. Ideas were thought to be proper uh, to the divine, not the human maker. Uh, now, the, human, uh, the humans that the poet makes here, uh, the great lover, the uh, you know, Taconius, these are idealized human beings, but what they actually are are uh, imitations of the idea, the ideal idea uh, that the poet has in his own mind. Now, the ultimate example among all of these uh, heroic figures is Cyrus. It, of course, Sidney's proceeding here, like Genesis, at the ultimate creation is that of human beings. And here, the ultimate for him seems to be Cyrus. Uh, that the poet gives us a Cyrus, not as nature does, which is a one-and-done prospect, but he gives us a Cyrus that can be a model for all human beings. 
So he can be a Cyrus to make many Cyruses. Um, this dynamic may have something of the quality of the imitation of Christ, putting on the image, the restored image of humanity that is in Christ and that we imitate and are reshaped uh, through the Word. As everything was created through the Word, it's restored through that same pattern, which we get in visible form in Christ. Um, okay. Keep moving. Sydney concludes by acknowledging how bold it is to compare the human wit to natura naturans. But he justifies this by saying that it is in fact fitting, since we are made in the image of the maker who created heaven and earth. He argues that it is in making a new world, the world anew, that we most perfectly bear the image of God, who after all is a maker. Uh, the he's, he's basically here that philosophers like Ficino had already done this, showing how philosophy, you know, if you become a philosopher, a magus, a wise man, you are achieving the pinnacle of human accomplishment and uh, you are basically figuring forth the image of God in your own life. Sidney says, yeah, good for you philosophers, but really it's the poets who get it, okay? which is true. Uh, okay, so in this short passage, I've left out some connective tissue here, but uh, I hope you will read it on your own sometime. Um, it's theologically and philosophically loaded, and what I've done here is just a sort of gloss, you know, suggesting where you might move with this. Uh, I'll come back to Sydney after talking about Shakespeare. So as for Shakespeare, This is where he says, not many people are going to understand what I just said. Okay. Um, so let me just go to Aristotle and imitation. That's his transition. And it's, this is what people will take as his definition of poetry. And, I mean, it's this wonderful mashup of Aristotle on mimesis, Horace on delighting and instructing, and... Simonides on a speaking, I mean, this is characteristic of Sidney's sort of syncretic way of thinking and proceeding. Oh, and here's <coughs> passage in Dubartas, which Sidney translated. He didn't finish the translation. It was completed after his death. We can't prove exactly which bits he wrote, but in this account of creation, uh, God has the idea for conceived. Sidney talks about the idea or for conceived. There is no use of that word prior to Sidney. It seems like he used it first in translating uh, um, Dubartas and then used it. Okay, this is if you want to argue, uh, as I have done, this is what you would look at. Um, and yes. So, with Shakespeare, in the absence of the kind of biographical information that we have about Sidney, uh, we have to rely almost exclusively on his works. Most would acknowledge that his greatest works engage philosophical and theological questions. The problem is that his works, like Walt Whitman's self, contain multitudes. His genius is uh, seen to contemporaries like great creating nature. As we know today, the density and texture of meaning has allowed Freudians, existentialists, Marxists, Christian humanists, flabby relativists, rigid rationalists, new historicists, whoever you want, to look into Shakespeare and see their own reflection looking back. Uh, I'm gonna try to avoid this kind of narcissism by attending closely to the actual language Shakespeare uses to try to be respectful, uh, as Professor Jackson urged. Um, by the way, I, one of the most bizarre compliments I've ever received from a student is, I love the way you read things into Shakespeare. It hurt me. It hurt me. That's what you get when you take them up the mountain and show them it. And 
Okay. Shakespeare, of course, knew the Bible. And when Antony tells Cleopatra that to find the limit of his love would require a new heaven, new earth, he expected that at least some in his audience would catch the anachronistic allusion to the book of Revelation. Likewise, when Cleopatra pledges, now no more the juice of Egypt's grape shall moist this lip, uh, Shakespeare expected auditors to hear the echo of another consummation and someone else's immortal longings. When we read a play entitled Measure for Measure, Shakespeare's mo uh, Shakespeare most certainly expects us to recall the Sermon on the Mount and to think about how we judge one another. He also expects us to know some scholastic philosophy. When we encounter a reference in that play to our glassy essence, we should not, as some editors do, gloss glassy as brittle or fragile. But rather, we should recall that the human soul, our essence, is like a mirror, a glassment mirror in this time. It's like a mirror that reflects the image, that reflects God and gives us the, his image and likeness. This detail is in fact crucial for understanding why the play has so many instances of like and as, uh, more than any other play by Sh that Shakespeare wrote. The central device of Measure for Measure is analogy. Uh, indeed, it is the analogy of Old Testament to New Testament, uh, of God to human beings, and of human beings one to another. Christian themes are evident in Shakespeare's works from the beginning, uh, but it is in the middle of his career, around 1600, with Hamlet, that Shakespeare's religious vocabulary explodes. The play is, among other things, a poignant examination of a man, a Christian, a man with a Christian conscience, trapped inside a classical revenge play. Any Christian living in the world today should find the situation as my students now like to say, relatable. Sorry, that was for the old, the boomers in the audience. Sorry. I have a list of words that we will not use in my class. I had to put this one on there. The other was, Othello has issues. That was about a decade ago. Othello, what's, what's his problem? He has issues. What do you mean? Well, he has issues, and he's not dealing with them. Okay. Um, as any Christian should note also, uh, at the end of the play, Hamlet the Revenger is able, with the full approval of his conscience, to administer what looks like revenge, but is, in fact, justice. Claudius dies by the sword he himself sharpened and the cup he himself poisoned. And before Hamlet dies, he exchanges forgiveness with Laertes. We Christians in the audience, meanwhile, have proven ourselves perfect pagans. Early in the play, when Hamlet comes across Claudius seeming to pray, he doesn't kill him, because he worries that if he kills Claudius at prayer, he may send his soul to heaven, which seems unjust to him. We in the audience, however, know from Claudius' own words that he is in fact not able to pray because of his sin. And we want to shout this out to Hamlet and tell him to take the opportunity, kill him. It's okay. You'll send him to hell. That's, it, it's good. You're all good. Anyone not feel that way? Some Christians, we are. Uh, in the end, the conscience that has been caught, I would argue, is that of the audience. Similarly, audiences are hoisted on their own petards when they long for other disagreeable characters, think of Shylock or Malvolio, uh, to get what they deserve. And when they do, uh, we actually are made to feel a little sorry for them. And perhaps, please God, ashamed of ourselves. In a subsequent variation on this technique, Shakespeare gives us characters that we love to hate, or as they say now, hate on, uh, such as Angelo in Measure for Measure, 
Bertram and All's Well. Uh, these characters within the play are forgiven. And we resent how this spoils the comic ending for those of us who value justice and even care more about poetic justice than forgiveness. Uh, we claim to be Christians. We do this, okay, I don't know. You're, you're probably some very good people here. Uh, I'll speak for myself. I claim to be a Christian quite often, but in the end, uh, still find out that I want an eye for an eye. Now you know. This points to what I would say is the bedrock of Shakespeare's ethics, the hatred of hypocrisy, and its frequent accomplice, rationalism. That is, those who refuse to acknowledge that there are more things in heaven, on, in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in their philosophies, they, in Shakespeare's view, seem to be particularly liable to deny the uncomfortable truths about themselves. When left to their own devices, a Puritan like Angelo, uh, in Measure for Measure, and a Catholic rigorist like Isabella, insist that reality and other people conform to their beliefs, without ever considering whether they might need to examine their own beliefs to see if they truly conform to reality. In particular, the reality of human weakness especially the weaknesses that follow from our bodily existence. Neither is able to balance the demands of justice and mercy, and both imagine a God in their own likeness, a God who is a perfectionist. In the play's examination of how they substitute their own judgment for that of God, Shakespeare shows us not only how they do not understand God's mercy, but how they do not understand themselves. They are unable to relate to others or to themselves with humanity. Let me now turn to The Tempest, which, is, uh, which I'll examine in a bit greater depth. The Tempest is Shakespeare's final work excluding collaborative efforts, and it, it re represents a final statement on the topic of mercy and justice. For those of you who haven't yet read the play, here is a brief overview so you don't feel lost in subsequent analysis. The central character of the play is Prospero, uh, who is a magus, a wise man. In his Oration on the Dignity of Man, a foundational text of Renaissance Neoplatonism and Hermeticism, Pico della Mirandola makes the magus the pinnacle of human accomplishment. The magus, uh, Latin for the wise man, uh, as the three magi that visit Jesus, okay, that's just the plural of magus. Uh, the magus was the one man in a million who, through a long and arduous process of study, could understand the secrets of nature and harness them and thereby work wonders. Throughout the play, Prospero's magic is referred to as his art. Prospero's daughter is named Miranda, a name that's derived from the Latin term for wonder, admiratio. She wonders at what she sees, from the opening shipwreck to the Machiavellian courtiers in the final scene. And she herself is admirable in her wonder. The play opens with a tempest and a sinking ship. On shore, Miranda is distraught at the sight, and Prospero comforts her, acknowledging that the tempest was a work of his magic and that all on the ship are safe. He also tells her that the time has come for her to know about their life before they were on the island. He explains that he had been the Duke of Milan, but had delegated his duties to his brother Antonio so that he could concentrate on his secret study of magic. Here he calls it the study of the liberal arts. Do you have a major in magic? If we're in the Renaissance, you couldn't declare it. You had to do it secretly. But maybe you have a secret reading group here. But, you know, maybe this is it. Um, with the help of Alonso, king of Naples, Antonio took advantage of Prospero's retirement and usurped the dukedom 
and set Prospero and Miranda adrift at sea. Providentially, they arrived on the island, where Prospero subjugated an airy spirit, Ariel, to help with his magic, and a subhuman creature named Caliban uh, to carry out the servile tasks. On the island, the castaways from the wreck begin to appear. Ferdinand first. He sees Miranda, and they both immediately fall in love. From my class, I understand that no one believes in love at first sight anymore. It hurts me deeply. You can see it in the play. It's real. <laughs> Trinkolo and Stefano, Alonzo's jester and butler, uh, meet Caliban and join forces with him to kill his master, Prospero, and take over the island, which Caliban believes is rightly his own. King Alonzo and the nobles in another group search for Ferdinand, but presume him dead. In the last act, having all his enemies at his mercy, Prospero discloses to his spirit, Ariel, that his plan is not to exact revenge, but to forgive those who have wronged him, renounce his magic, and set Ariel free. Uh, he's still pissed, <laughs> but he's going to do the right thing. It's very clear. Prospero foils the plot of Caliban, forgives his brother and Alonzo, and performs one final marvel. He shows Alonzo, his son Ferdinand, playing chess with Miranda. As all prepared to leave the island, Prospero, who has given up his magic, asks the audience for its forgiveness in the epilogue. One question often raised by those who read or see the play for the first time is why Prospero forgives his brother, who does not even seem penitent. This is similar to the questions people ask about the plays I've already discussed. We'd be more satisfied if he'd put him to the sword. Probably what we would do. But with The Tempest, uh, there's another question on top of this that comes up. Why does Prospero renounce his magic? Indeed, one cannot help but think his magical powers could come in handy back in Milan. So why should Prospero give up this power that Pico made an emblem of human self-actualization? Magic is central to the play, and indeed the play is ordered in part by Prospero's magical spectacles. The opening wonder is the violent tempest, and the final miracle is the revelation of Ferdinand and Miranda playing chess. The contrast is significant. The tempest strikes those of us in the audience as real. Only with Miranda do we learn that it is not real, but an illusion. The final spectacle, that of Ferdinand and Miranda playing chess, is taken by Alonso and his courtiers as a vision of his lost son, and only a vision, until he learns what we already know, that Ferdinand is alive. The movement of the play is from illusion to reality, better to say from art, the art of magic, uh, to nature. The love of the two is not a work of Prospero's magic, it's a work of nature. Another organizing principle in which the play is implicated is the order of its scenes. Whereas Prospero's wonders are sequential, the progression of the play's nine scenes forms a perfect ring composition. Uh, if you've read Homer or Virgil, you might know about this kind of structure. The first and the last scene have the same characters, the second and the penultimate scene have the same characters, and so forth, until we get to the middle scene, which doesn't have a parallel. Uh, and that, in that standalone middle scene, we see the unseen Prospero witnessing Ferdinand and Miranda pledging their love to one another. Like the final spectacle, what is happening in this scene is perfectly natural to young people falling in love. The two noble, good, and innocent lovers are the center of the play and the ultimate wonder of the play. In contrast to Prospero's art, which controls everything that happens on the island, their love is governed only by nature. In the end, it is not Prospero's most potent art that will make the world a better place, 
The best it can do, Prospero has rightly judged, is to undo the problems that it caused. The reason for hope at the end of the play is not magic, but the natural goodness of the younger generation. It is their perfectly human love that gives us hope for the regeneration of the old and deeply flawed world of Italy. More important, their love is a wonder, surpassing anything Prospero can do. Going further still, the greatest wonder is not something humans do, uh, it's what they are. Uh, this, in short, is Augustine's argument on magic in the city of God. He says, working wonders, big deal, what human beings can do in working wonders. God created man. There's no wonder to compare with that. That's, in short, Augustine's argument against magic. Shakespeare makes it clear in the play that there is something inhuman about magic. It's true that Prospero ascends to the rarity of one in a million, but in doing so, he neglects his ordinary human duty of being a dupe. In pursuit of his personal self-actualization, he removes himself and, inadvertently, his daughter from human society. Shakespeare does not agree with Pico's oration that being a magus makes one godlike. Rather, it is something to abjure, that's the word Shakespeare uses, uh, the word that would be used for renouncing a heresy. Furthermore, uh, it represents a loss. Magic represents a loss, not a perfection of humanity, similar to the way that revenge represents a loss of humanity. The best analog for Shakespeare's position on magic is found in Montaigne's essays. Published in the English translation of John Florio in 1603. Montaigne's essay on the cannibals is generally acknowledged as a source for the Tempest. A passage from Gonzalo on the Golden Age has its original in Montaigne's essay. And the name of Caliban is a loose anagram of cannibal. What is not acknowledged is Montaigne's great last essay on experience, which argues against just the kind of flight from humanity that we see in Prospero. Shakespeare differs from Montaigne in one important respect. Uh, between ourselves, there are two things that I have always observed to be in singular accord, super celestial thoughts, and subterranean conduct. And as far as these who want to be so super celestial, uh, they want to get out of themselves and escape from the man. That is madness. Instead of changing into angels, they change into beasts. And instead of raising themselves, they lower themselves. Uh, and he goes on to talk about uh, Alexander, uh, well, you can read, this is just the last page of, of Montaigne's essays. Uh, you should read all of other experience. It's very long. And you're not quite sure where this guy is going in this essay. He spends a lot of time on, yes, bodily habits and things like that. And, you know, disclosing things like, my ears often itch, you know, mainly on the inside. And goes on about his kidney stones, page after page after page. And people are wondering, what is going on with this? Well, he pulls it, he, he saves himself at the end. He pulls it together like that essay that you rescue at the very end. Um, he's getting at the fact we were all, what were we all doing? Saying, would you tell us something intellectual and interesting? And he was doing something to us. Um, uh, he uses these two quotations. Uh, Since you obey the gods, that is acknowledging a power greater than yourself, you rule the world. I guess the implied corollary is if you think yourself a god, in fact, you become a slave. Uh, and Plutarch, you as, are as much a god as you will own that you are nothing but a man alone. And he goes on. 
It is an absolute perfection and virtually divine to know how to enjoy our being rightfully. We seek other conditions because we do not understand the use of our own and go outside of ourselves because we do not know what it is like inside. Yet there is no use our mounting on stilts, for on stilts we must still walk on our own legs. And on the loftiest throne in the world, we are still sitting only on our own rump. The most beautiful lives, to my mind, are those that conform to the common human pattern, with order, but without miracle and without eccentricity. Okay, any finishes with something on old age, which, yes, has something to do with the body. Um, so, uh, Shakespeare differs from 110. Uh, he insists on, not transcending, but he uh, uh, disagrees on one important point. Uh, he agrees that we disfigure our humanity when we try to rise magus-like above the normal human condition. Um, but he also expresses a belief that there is something good about lowering oneself. We see this in the action of Ferdinand, who in that central scene has submitted to the base labor better suited to Caliban. Out of love for Miranda, he has descended from being a prince to carrying logs. Prospero's ascent, on the other hand, has separated him, and even worse, his daughter, from the rest of humanity. Ferdinand's descent, not Prospero's ascent, is what is truly admirable. Like Isaac bearing wood for his own sacrifice, Ferdinand's action typologically recalls the divine condescension in which God himself carries the wood of the cross. This does not make Ferdinand a Christ figure, uh, so much as it makes him a man, uh, something that is wonderful in its own right. And when Miranda tries to carry the wood for Ferdinand, we see that they are a perfect match, contending not for superiority, but rather to serve one another. Of course, Prospero's action at the end of the play is also a descent, and it is in service principally of Miranda but, by extension, uh, all of Milan and Naples. Prospero's art is an art of control. In abjuring this rough magic, uh, he submits to the power of others, specifically the power held by the members of the audience. And here is his epilogue. Um, and we won't, I won't go through all of it right now, but I hope you sometime will divide it into 10 lines and 10 lines. We have hands in the first part, uh, spirit in the second part. Um, in the end, he is asking us, and there are multiple meanings here, um, but at the end, he is asking for their prayer. Uh, which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself and frees all faults. And then the last couplet. I mean, I hope you hear an echo in this last couplet. As you from crimes would pardon be, let your indulgence set me free. Um, I think it's an echo of the Lord's Prayer and on the importance of forgiving if we want to be forgiven. Uh, Prospero wants the audience's forgiveness. It's, this is, uh, in theater, this is plaudite. You know, at the end of Midsummer Night's Dream, Puck will come out. And he wants, in case anything went wrong here, you know, please don't hold it against us. And you're trying to get the audience to applaud. Here, he's asking the audience, yes, to applaud. But, well, there's a lack of it. Sorry, that was bad. Okay, that is how you break a magic spell. Those of you in that senior seminar uh, know this, but can't acknowledge it. Um, you know, you draw a circle and, you know, you break it by doing that. Of course, the island is a circle, the play's got a ring count. It, there's, again, this is a gloss. Um, 
Just don't do what I did. Dedicate your life to this. And... <laughs> um, of course, in the Christian scheme, reaching upwards leads to falling, and lowering oneself is what is truly godlike. And what ultimately perfects nature is not art, but grace. Indeed, Prosper's art could not improve the nature of Caliban. Uh, Caliban, at one point, says he taught me language, you know, but the only good of it is I learned how to curse. Um, at the end of the play, however, we even have hope for Caliban, who has learned from the folly of following Stefano and Trinculo, who had the gift of the spirit, you know, a bottle of booze, the gift of the spirit. Yeah, it's, uh, and Caliban pledges that he will, quote, be wise hereafter and seek for grace. The only question at the end of the play is whether the audience will pardon Prospero and thereby participate in the grace of Christian liberation. Okay, let me tie this together. And uh, Sidney and Shakespeare give us two different versions of Christian anthropology. Sidney shows us the possibility of refashioning ourselves in the image God had for us in the beginning. Shakespeare, on the other hand, shows us the necessity of humbling ourselves as God humbled himself by becoming human. Both visions are beautiful and both seem theologically sound to me, but they also appear to be not only different, but somehow even at odds with each other. What, see, what we seem to have are two different anthropologies and two correspondingly different Christologies. Sidney is thinking of Christ as Logos, as God's own idea of himself, through which all things were created and through which all things can be elevated to their original glory. Um, the process of returning to God for Sidney is, is largely mental. It is through our wit, which combines the powers of imagination and intellect that we can see and be moved to grasp the perfection to which we are called. Shakespeare is not thinking of Christ in the same Neoplatonic terms. Indeed, he is thinking of the Neoplatonic tendency towards Gnosticism as the, a kind of Christian heresy. Christ, as Shakespeare is thinking of him, is the God who has become man, participating in all of the material realities we experience. Sidney's approach is evangelical and individualistic. As we become more Christ-like, we become more a model through which others can see what they should become. Shakespeare's approach is more communal. None of us is a hero. We all are in need of mercy, and we have to be humble enough to seek mercy, not only from God, but from one another. God's presence in us is found not in our heroic virtue, but in our acknowledgement of our faults and in giving and receiving forgiveness. Undoubtedly, their theological choices reflect their situations and purposes. Sidney was a young, ambitious, and above all, idealistic, aristocratic courtier. Shakespeare was older than Sidney when he wrote the great works. As a playwright, he was exposed to a broader slice of humanity. Sidney is frustrated with a Protestant establishment that lacks the necessary zeal to help Protestants on the continent who are in need. He sees a need for greater idealism and inspiration. Shakespeare, on the other hand, has suffered religious enthusiasts, whether they be Puritans who denounce the theater or Catholics who want to assassinate the queen or blow up parliament. Sidney was concerned with the defect of Christian commitment, Shakespeare with an excess. These differences in orientation that I am highlighting here, however, are not absolute. As, we, uh, as I mentioned, Sidney was quite capable of criticizing Neoplatonic idealism. The failure of Platonic love is the overarching conceit of Astrophil and Stella. And all, although pathology is Shakespeare's forte, his presentation of marriage shows that he can be an idealist. In a time when marriage was largely about property, Shakespeare makes love the foundation of marriage. Although I have presented Sidney and Shakespeare's anthropological and Christological positions as opposed, they are not opposed so much as partial and complementary. 
They are, as it were, two sides of the same complex reality. Both Sidney and Shakespeare thought of man as at once the image of God and a handful of dust, as did the compositors of Genesis, who in the, the uh, uh, Midrashic commentary we, we got from Professor Jackson, they feel the need to make the two creation narratives into one. In the Renaissance, they were pretty happy to see them as two, and that you needed to be able to see the two as different if you wanted to navigate what it is to be human. Um, that human infirmity is two-sided is no problem for Christ, who is the universal medicine. He can save us from complacency and indifference, perhaps using Sidney's apology to raise our sights to the greatness for which we were created. Christ also can save us from arrogance, isolation, and the cult of self-actualization, perhaps using the tempest to remind us that our own strength can be our greatest weakness. In the end, of course, we need not one side of Christ or another. We need the whole Christ. Um, and I think there's another book where we can find that. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.